0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mission 300 podcast. Brian and I are here yet again with another episode. And today we are talking about Jephthah and this question of why does integrity matter? Does it actually matter to us today in 2020? Or is it something that we've sort of moved beyond as a culture, moved beyond as a society? Because there is a cost to integrity we're going to dive into that today. We're going to see this character of Jephthah in a light that you probably haven't seen him before if you're familiar with this story. And if you're not familiar with uh, him as a historical character in the Bible, then you're, you're really in for a treat because we're going to see him as a man who knew God to be a God of integrity at a very high level. Um, and then we're going to also ask a couple other questions. Why does the integrity of the word of God even matter? That might seem like a basic question, but the implications of that are really deep. And we're also going to talk about what happens when you try to separate a man from his word. So let's get into it. Talking about
1: the word in a man, just think about the little phrase and, of, to be honest, and then we go and repeat something. Where in the world did we have to add that into our conversation? Like, so you were lying up to this point, but now we're to be honest. And I, I think that plays into our cultural dynamics. I mean, our words really mean nothing in our current culture. That's why if someone makes an agreement in current day and age, you need like 40 pages of disclaimer contract that you could be up, that can be upheld in court. And then you can still go challenge that contract. And why do we do all that? Because our words don't mean anything. It's. Different than saying, hey, I'm going to write some things down so we're clear on what we're agreeing to versus I'm going to make it so complicated that we're entrapped into these things because our words don't matter. Uh, There was a day and age that, you know, especially like I lived in a, a farming community for a while in South Carolina, right outside of Charlotte, and they would just make an agreement and shake hands and it was done. That was the older way of doing it because. You could not separate a man from his word. That was the integrity point. That was the bond. And I think this plays into our current world. I mean, we don't believe anything anymore. Or we choose to believe the most smallest little tidbits because it benefits us. But the deep down, we don't we don't believe. And it falls into, even when it comes to God, is we don't believe him. We believe things about him. Now, someone will be saying, no, I believe him. Well, there's hard things he he promises. And when I say hard, I don't mean something negative to you. Promises that are impossible to fulfill. Yet we're still anxious about the result when he promised to do something. So we don't value that. We don't, uh, a promissory note in the, uh, the the term promissory note, if you sign a promissory note, it has to be fulfilled. It, it's not. It's basically a a an agreement that can't be broken. That's what a promise was, and we've made a promise about everything, and nothing's real. And so I kind of want to. I think the character of Jephthah really reveals the core character, first of all, of someone who so valued the word, his own word, that to his own hurt he would stay to it. It also reveals the character of God, because God said he cannot lie. The second thing was, he swears by no one greater than himself that if he promises it, he also will fulfill it. And so if he does that, why do we challenge it so much? And I'm saying that generally. Just why do we challenge things he says? And why are we believing other things if he's a if he's a God that
0: he cannot? change his work. I think that's a pretty foreign concept to us. I mean, if if we're being honest, even, even I look glad you're being
1: honest instead of lying.
0: If we're being honest, I was hoping you would catch that. (laughs) So I was, I was thinking about this last week. I was listening to this, this businessman he was talking about how in, in some of his past business dealings, he really learned um, that the legal system is not as full of integrity as many of us assume it to be. Like he was talking about one instance in particular where there was someone who was bringing a a lawsuit against him, and you don't even have to bring um, evidence or proof when you're suing someone, because in a lot of ways what you can do is essentially say, I'm suing this person because I think they did something wrong to me. And then you can get into a phase of discovery where you actually go looking for evidence or proof or information. And so even, even just how the, our legal system is set up, it's not built on integrity necessarily, even though it's supposed to be. And in, in a lot of ways, it, it does. It promotes, ideally, it promotes law and holding everyone to the same standard of law. But I think that's a picture of how we've, we've had a, an idea of what integrity and honor is supposed to look like, but then we've been let down by it because it's been in the system of the world and well, so then we establish or attribute that to God as well. So let's you said a
1: couple of key things that I think we have to look at and it comes to the Bible and everything else. Our nation was founded on a constitution, on a document of a of a set of structure of how things should go. Then a system is built on top of that and it's within that system that the law or how do we how do we move this way? How do we move this way? How do we interpret this? And then judges were put into place in order to interpret that what was being done or legislated lines up with the Constitution. I, I don't know if people really realize the reason that the Supreme Court was put into place was to make sure that the legislators and the laws that they wrote corresponded with the credibility and the integrity of the Constitution. That is the place. So the integrity was the constitution. The place where the disingenuous happens is the system that try to utilize the constitution. So I think it's very important because Christianity is the mm-hmm. same way. So so in one, uh, Psalm 138.2, the New King James says, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have, see, th- this is what's important. You can't have loving kindness You can't have holiness to a name if there's not a truth, a a foundation point that holds all that up. He says, for you have exalted your word above your name. Ponder that for a moment. You've exalted your word above your name. Now, some other translation says above all else, uh, you've exalted your name and your word above all else, and it kind of blends that. But we know in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. And I think it's very interesting that he starts out in John, that it's the word that was in the beginning, and the same was in the beginning that was with God, and all things were created by him and through him, and for without him, nothing was made. Jesus is known as the word. The reason is that that is such a critical statement is we have no foundation of faith. We have no foundation of trust. We have no foundation to build our life if there is not something that can't be moved, which is his word. And from that, his name is exalted. So to say Jesus is the Messiah, that would be exalting his name. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King of Kings. But that can't happen if there's not a foundation of what makes that happen. And that is his word. That's why when we talked about uh, a couple podcasts ago about how when Jesus kind of, and the humor of Jesus walking along the the, uh, disciple and possibly his wife or uh, the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus didn't try to convince them with their reason, with their uh, intellect. He didn't try to convince them with feelings and proving. Instead, he took them back to the prophecies that in the Old Testament that were spoken about him, and it energized something deeper. So think about how did Jesus prove who he was to them? He took them back to the word. And so they both work together. One doesn't work without the other. The other doesn't like for instance you actually can't have the word if you don't have a name. So it's a king that declares the word. So it go they go hand in hand. The reason I'm just saying all that, you can't separate the word from the person. They're one in the same unless there's something wrong and twisted. And this is the same as the foundation, even of the country of the USA, one of the the only countries that's built on the years of a constitution. You have the word and then we respond to it, but our response affects the word. So they do go hand in hand, but the integrity of it is the constitution. That's what gives a platform for everything else. And the same is true. The platform for Jesus the Messiah was the word, which he was. So you can't separate. Sorry for the tongue twister there, but I think it becomes very important as we go forward in understanding the character of Jephthah, you have to understand how critical this was in the human process throughout the biblical account.
0: well, to me, it's it's crazy to see that God created everything through his words by speaking his word. And so if his word were to lose integrity in a physical sense, that would destabilize our universe. So if he's the one that spoke light and said, let there be light, if his word can't be trusted to create life or light, then light itself will be unstable. And everything was created through his word and we're made in his image. And so therefore it stands to reason that we're designed to have integrity to our word as well. That's at least a goal we should have if, if not intertwined with our being completely. So that's, that's core to who God is. His word, when it's spoken, it's true. It does not fail. Well, and we see that clarified in Hebrews one
1: three, where it says, "Being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power." So this is very important. It's like you're right. I mean, everything is is being upheld. We see that in in Psalms. So you're saying that means His word became a law. So that's where even when we're talking about Esther and we talk about different kings through the Old Testament, we see this even with John the Baptist when he went before Herod. He declared his word that he would do this for his, uh, th- this promise to have John the Baptist beheaded. And then when he realized what was, or he, he gave this word, this promise, and then when the promise came back to him, okay, I want John the Baptist's head, he could not change his word because his word had already gone out. So even from kings, they wouldn't change the word. It's the, probably the most clearest in uh, the King of Persia with Esther. He wanted to help her once all of it was disclosed, all of the all of the cheating, all of the lying, all of the deceit, all of the everything that was underneath. So she came and said, "You need to do something to protect my people." And his response was, "I give Mordecai my signet ring to create a new law." But he couldn't take back the original law he already decreed. That was why they had to write a law that would counter without breaking the first law. So they could still go on this certain day to kill the Jews. They could still do that. That was, that was the law. But the new law said the Jews can rise up and defend themselves. And so they were able to rise up and then they were able to stop Anyone from doing what they did and they were able to take back. And so I thought it was interesting. The law didn't go away, but a new law of empowerment of the people to deal with that allowed the things to turn and allow allow a change to take place. So I'm only saying this again, all of this, because once it's decreed, it's a law in, in biblical time. Now we get to the life of Jephthah and why this becomes so critical. And why he goes down in the heroes of faith, contrary to a lot of people wanting to find, well, he was in the hall of faith, but he had a lot of problems, so he's not an example. These are the witnesses that are cheering us on. Second of all, whoever writes that kind of stuff, who's the example we should look at then? Well, we need to look at Jesus. But how many people find ways for us to not identify with Jesus? And this is a, we can go on with that conversation, but that's been on previous podcasts before. So we're just staying to, here's a man of faith that the world wasn't worthy of when he lived.
0: And he's written of in Hebrews and here he is. I always think that's interesting when people try to tear down heroes like Gideon, Samson, and point out, well, David had some you know, affair issues and all these, all these problems. And when, when Hebrews is talking about them, like you just said, it literally says the world was not worthy of these people. They performed acts of righteousness. And yet we just have this habit of identifying a flaw and pointing that out and making that the reason where, why we shouldn't look at someone as an example or as a hero. And then, like you said, if you keep doing that, there's not a human being throughout history that you can look to. So therefore, we have no heroes. So therefore, don't be surprised when the culture and society around you is completely void of any heroics of anything resembling nobility or leadership or strength, because you've taken away all of those things from from history. So let's let's get into the life of Jephthah what do we know about him? What have we been told about Jephthah? What pops out to your mind? I mean, I didn't hear a lot about him growing up. Um, the the most famous thing that that I can remember was the story of him sacrificing his daughter and what a terrible mistake that was and how you've got to be careful what kind of promises you make and oaths you give up because you could end up saying something stupid that costs you greatly. And I mean, that's, that's really all I knew about Jephthah
1: growing up. And quite honestly, there is a deep point to that because it was Jesus that said, I'm trying to give both sides to this so we could have a good context because there is things that we could learn. It's like, okay, you don't have to do that. But it doesn't take away from who Jephthah was. So he said, uh, Jesus said in Matthew five thirty three, again, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your own head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. By the way, a little side note on that. Those that are changing their their view like you say yes and then you find a different reason to change that or you say no but you wishy-washy that idea according to Jesus is from the evil one we're afraid to say yes we're afraid to say no by the way this comes to the integrity issue of what we are and i'm not pointing any fingers it is not easy when someone corners you to give a yes or a no but there becomes something once you say yes it is written as yes once you say no, it is written as no. When you start wishy-washing, you violate your own internal conscious. You start violating things when among yourself, and it starts bring it discredits your own internal. Like even if you said, "Hey, I'm going to start running every day," uh, like I'm going to I'm going to run a mile four days a week, and you put the dates down, then you don't do it. You actually do something within that discredits that. And you will start losing confidence, even in your own work. And again, I'm not pointing Actually, fingers so at
0: this. That that's such a real thing too. I was talking with um, we have an amazing pediatrician. We have my wife and I. We have three kids and a fourth on the way, and uh, we've we love the clinic we take our kids to. And um the the main doctor at the clinic, his name's Doctor Bob. It's fantastic guy. And one of the first things he was telling us when uh, when our oldest was about Uh, One and a half or two, as she's getting into that age where she's communicating and learning boundaries. He said, make sure that you pick your lines and you stick to them. So when you say no to something, you need to hold your ground on that. When you say yes to something, let that let that be fluid or let that be a yes. Because if you don't, what you're actually teaching your child is that there are no lines. And you don't need to respect lines. So yes doesn't mean yes. And no doesn't mean no. And so they they actually grow up and mentally develop a bit more unstable, you know, not to the degree necessarily of, well, you're making a psychopath, but they, they don't have trust in your word. So if you tell them down the road, don't run into the street, that doesn't register as, oh, there's a truth that my parent is speaking to me. So I shouldn't run into the street. It's just, oh, it's just something they say and i can do it and it's fine or i cannot do it and it's fine that it actually works into the psychology of the development of children and i was thinking about that when when it relates to our relationship with god the importance of seeing his integrity in that because it's it's a real physical thing for children and adults developing today oh for
1: sure and and again this isn't a i don't want to take people to take this in a sense of condemnation because It's just something, evaluate, like, where have I, where do I do this in? And it could be a reason why there's a frustration, one, in trust in yourself, two, in trust in others, and three, in trust in God. And so I would say the bigger point is if you knew God as a father, that would not change his word towards you. And man, I have experienced this on such a grand scale. There is times I know I didn't deserve his favor when he promised me favor and he came through and it broke me like, why do you keep coming through? I don't deserve it right now. And he did. And it wasn't those that kind of, oh, I can get by with this. He'll come through. No, it like broke me. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I am sorry I didn't keep my word to you and. And it's just little things, but things that you don't feel like you're deserving of, which is why we get into works. This is why author's into the evil one. And then we get into works, then we feel like we're disconnected on a spiritual level, or we start finding ways to change what that original word was so we can stay, no, I'm obeying, I'm obeying. So we start trying to alter it, which the first question was, did God really say? Did God really Mm -hmm. say that? Well, you know he said it, but did he mean it like that? Or what was his motive? And and we get into all that stuff. And it's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with, hey, uh, like for instance, when uh, Z- uh, Zacharias, um, the father of John, I say is it Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist? When, when the angel came and said, you're going to have John the Baptist, he started laughing. He's like, "No way. Look how old we are." And the angel had to shut his mouth. Like he could not speak until the child was born. Why? Because he was his words were going to start countering what was going on on the inside of him. So the angel shut his mouth. And then once John the Baptist was born, he spoke and he declared who John the Baptist was. Now consider Mary. God comes and says, "You're going to Here's what's going to happen." The messenger says, you're going to have a child, it's going to be from the Holy Spirit, and you're you're going to bear this son. And she said, so be it, whatever, but, but how can this be? I'm just a handmaiden. And then he goes, sorry, then he goes on to explain how this will happen. There's a difference between asking the question, but a heart open that is already receiving versus you're challenging what it is, then you'll receive. Those are like two really good pictures of the difference between the two. And we're kind of getting a little off track because we still haven't talked about Jephthah yet so what we know about Jephthah is he's a man and what he's most known for is the fact that his uh he came home and he made a vow to god that the first thing that comes out of my house i will offer to you as a sacrifice now keep in mind the house is not like getting onto the front porch and you open the door the house was the estate line of his house that he would offer. And he probably had in his mind, now we're gonna start getting and assuming and we can go all different directions. The bottom line is, most likely cattle, sheep, whatever they were raising would be wandering in and out and a dog or something. So you come in and I I was gonna offer it and his daughter comes running through. And it, it says he, grieved says, what have you done to me? And he rips his clothes and he is tormented because now he has to keep this vow to his daughter. And we talked earlier, there's so many thoughts about what just happened there. But the most important, before we get into those, all the thoughts, the reason he tore is because he now was put into a place, the thing that I love and my word how do I divide that? I can't divide that. Like, th- this was his biggest grief. I can't divide the two. I can't violate my word to God. And whether he made a dumb vow or not, the point was, according to Psalms 115, 3-5, I want you to listen to this. He who does not backbite, backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor he who takes nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors. So here's this is David or so the psalmist is writing. But God honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. God honors. So we're looking at Old Testament. We're looking at the the value system that was built into Jephthah. He made a vow. He can't break his word. Now he's grieving over the decision. And so it's important that we, when we talked about earlier, we we're talking about you can't separate God from his word. Well, a man of integrity, a man of God, you can't separate him from his word either. Like they're one in the same. And so this is the dilemma he finds himself in but i think rather than focusing on the dilemma we should focus on who he was because like we talked about earlier
0: there's a lot of weird there's all sorts of different thoughts about what
1: happened next
0: there is a lot of interesting things that you can find out there and and it's it's such a like this is this is a very difficult story for people to read because it it's exactly how it's read out there. It's in Judges 11. You guys can go read it for yourself. He makes this vow. His daughter ends up being the one that he has to sacrifice. And so now he's got this dilemma, as you said, because he knows that God is a God of integrity, keeps his word, can't go back on the word. That's That's what he is as a man, as not just someone who has heard from God and follows God, but he knows God to be, to have that characteristic and he has to have it as well. And that's not an easy situation to be in. And then there's people that will spend plenty of time in theological debates and trying to take different translations to do little things and say, well, maybe he didn't really mean this. Maybe he didn't really, maybe he actually meant this. And you can reference this thing in Leviticus. That means there's a loophole with all this. And, and you just get lost so much in trying to, trying to justify what you already feel that we'd miss the point of integrity itself. Does that make sense? Oh, so much so. And I I think you have
1: to catch what the dilemma is, I said we're going to go before him, but I I think it is important to say, first of all, his daughter was his only daughter and only child. And when she comes out, he says in Judges 1135, and it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, "Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, not in a sense that you're my problem, but in the sense of. This, this coming out has heaped a great trouble on me, for I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. I, I just want you to hear this statement. I have given my word to the Lord. I can't go back on it. Where did he build this, this integrity with God? Because God never went back on his word with Jephthah. Like There's a bond and a covenant between each other that is like, here's where I am. And she said to him this. I want you to catch this. My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies and the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Again, there is so much different words to try to say. Well, I'll let you you say some of the different options. But I want you to catch something. If Jephthah violates his word, he also loses his daughter. Because her respect of him, her honor of him, everything that he is has to do with the word that he gave to the Lord. That's why she said, let it be done to me according to what that word is. I want you to catch another picture. Who else in history made that statement? And I believe it took place in a garden in Gethsemane. And God, Jesus is wrestling with this idea. I have to go and sacrifice myself. And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. It's the same Russell. I I think this is what's so much more important when you're looking at these characters. What is the imagery that is being done? In this part of the story, it's more about the daughter than it's even Jephthah. God said, I will send my son and he will be the lamb of God and he will save the world and he'll be slain and he will rise again. You know, he... All the prophecies about who Jesus is. But now it comes down to it. Why don't we look at God being bad for offering his son? Why why I'm not referring to child sacrifices where you're offering your children up to God's and hoping to get favor. That is as evil as you could possibly come because God's even said it was evil. And we can go through that. So let's just separate that. I'm talking about what did God know? And what did Jesus know that even in the human humanity, this was going to be hard, but they knew something more. They they knew something more. And it's no different when Abraham went to offer Isaac, he said, we will be back. We. And up that he was going to go through. He didn't know but he knew the God that raised the dead and calls those things that don't exist as though they do. Now, I don't know what Jephthah knew, but somewhere in his daughter, this is more important than anything else is keeping your word. And I just want you to maybe catch the imagery versus the technicality of that, that we get too lost in, that we end up discrediting uh, Jephthah, we end up discrediting the story, we end up laying our current world's view over these stories, and we miss the bigger point. Their word mattered more than their life. That is the context that has to be understood between his daughter and him, and God. That was the relationship. How much more, if God gives us our word, we can trust it. He laid... You get what I'm getting at. Like, if we don't believe God would be willing to keep his word, there is nothing. There is nothing. That's my little then you can't
0: believe, you can't trust him when he says he promises you eternal life then. No. If his word isn't completely 100% full of integrity, what he speaks will come to pass. Then you can't trust that you'll be given eternal life. You can't trust that there was a Messiah sent. You can't trust anything. And without that, what do you have? We you have, have nothing. We have,
1: we have worry and anxiety and everything that the evil one wanted to give us.
0: Right. You have this, this fear of death constantly. You have no quality of life whatsoever. But, but it's amazing when you see the depth of God's integrity and what that actually means. Because if you believe it to be such an extreme thing, I mean, this is an extreme story. Abraham and Isaac, that's extreme. Jesus dying on the cross. That's pretty extreme. And maybe for some people, when you see it in this light of Jephthah and his daughter, it 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 becomes a bit more real. Because if we're if if we're looking at it, sometimes we've grown up around this story of Jesus and God in the cross, and it becomes a bit normal to us, to where we don't see what that must have felt like for God the Father to sacrifice his son because we have this thing in the back of our well, he always knew he would bring him back to life. Okay, that's that's the point. He knows his word. He trusts his word, even in the extreme circumstances. But we water it down because that seems rough.
1: But we, he still had to rustle through the emotional feelings of being human. He wasn't going to bend, but he wanted to show it is not a simple thing to just go, oh, I'll go. No, you, you're about ready to get your skin ripped apart you're going to be tortured, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be so brutalized. And on top of that, there would be a moment that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that he was no longer father. He would feel the orphaning of the one he loved in that moment, and the separation from each other. Yes, they knew something greater, but he was still in that moment too, that he had to but he says, the joy that was set before me, I endured that. Now, that to put that picture completely on Jephthah would not be a good assessment because we don't know what all the thoughts sure. were. But I, I think it is important that you need to catch the daughter's thoughts. Jephthah was known. So let's go back. Now Now that's kind of the end of the story, right? Because that's what everything focuses on. And you had, I kind of skipped over, you had you had brought up so many different views of what happened maybe we could hit those at the oh, end yeah. but m- maybe we're wasting our time cuz we're still taking away from the core of the story who was jephthah so maybe if you can kind of kick us off and uh kind of share who jephthah was so we yep. so we so can have a context
0: in verse this. 1 of judges chapter 11 and this like this is his origin story here and it's not it's not just your standard you know he was born raised and had a fun life and then went and did great things so it says he was um jephthah was a warrior he was the son of a harlot so that's well, let the me, first let me just, sentence
1: let me just add uh what what translation is this to say it was a warrior
0: oh uh yeah valiant
1: warrior i'm using okay. the nasb that's fine the word valiant has everything to do with integrity his whole identity was built on this i, I just wanted to throw that out very important
0: exactly it says he was a man a mighty man of valor which is a similar phraseology to where we see Gideon introduced but that's for another day And it says but he was the son of a harlot and Gilead was the father of Jephthah so we got this guy Gilead has a son named Jephthah Jephthah through a harlot how would you like it says how would you like
1: that whole introduction here's this yeah that's
0: the first thing history sees
1: of you (laughs) you know you have like the the announcer for. Uh, a sporting event and in the ring you have Jephthah, Mm -hmm. the the mighty man of valor oh but he is the son of a harlot
0: that's the part that's whispered by all the trainers and the people like yeah but his mom was a prostitute so you know whatever Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stigma that comes from that even even today but even look at this time because so in the second verse gilead's wife bore him sons and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So he had to flee from his brothers, live in a foreign land, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about him and they went out with him. What
1: an origin story. Our father, you're not going to have an inheritance. They disowned him. By the way, they also believe this is what was going on in the life of David, why his brothers also didn't bring him, because David was of a different mother. Not necessarily a prostitute, but of a different mother. However, his great-great-grandmother was Rahab the harlot. So I'm not trying to make a pattern here. I'm just saying it's very interesting who God chooses. It's usually who we've deemed as worthless and put, put aside. And by the way, in the idea of worthlessness, it was how society viewed the men that would come around him. As worthless. So basically this renegade that gets shoved out with no value and no inheritance probably similar people joined to him and they went out raiding and so uh, within legal consequence, within, right so who they were raiding was the enemy that was in their land. They weren't raiding their own people. Contextually they are going and raiding among the enemy and this is where his reputation became from so everyone in Israel knew he could go win in these raids and exploit the enemy and go do this. And that's what, that's how he made his livelihood. So he became a professional warrior, but he was known as valiant. So his integrity was someone that even though he was deemed with worthless men, he was not a degenerate. I think that's very important that we clarify that.
0: So that's, that's how he starts out. He gets his band of fellows around him. He is a mighty man of valor. His and worthless the sons...
1: deplorables were surrounded <laughs> around him. The uneducated, not of the right stature people surrounded.
0: Yep. To point out another pattern, those are similar kind of people that that, uh, that formed around David yeah. when he had to flee from Saul. Those that were in debt, distressed, discouraged.
1: Those are the ones who uh, David got. Mm-hmm. And they ended up becoming so, the 400 mighty men. the little Okay, go on. Yeah,
0: Just saying. So, so it comes about here um, that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. They fought against them, and the elders of Gilead went to find Jephthah. And they said, come be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Now, this is so interesting because a few sentences ago, people were kicking him out saying you won't have an inheritance with us, go away. And now when there's, when the chips are down, when there's a fight, they come to him because he is a mighty man of valor. And because of who he is, they come and say, be our chief, we need you, buddy. And he said to them, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? Ponder that for a moment.
1: What, Uh, we could be, you know, you you can look at this humorously But let's look at the depth of this question. You have hated me. Now you're in distress. Why are you coming to me? Because he had a reputation with his men of being valiant and strong. Like, how big was his army? I can't imagine it it was a huge army that he had, because it was only the worthless people that was cast out, you know, maybe... I don't know, in our current society, I guess that would be half of the nation is of the worthless side. And I'm not being cynical. I mean, that's just what they're called. It's like they're lower. Half the nation is split. So we, anyway, we don't know how big his army was, but it, but they went around, they were willing to go raid, they were willing to go fight, and this reputation about them. So it's very important that you understand it wasn't like what happened to the strong men of their own country? Where, where were all the valiant men of their own people? There was no mon- one among their own people that could stand up and be strong when the enemy was pressing the gates. What happened to them? Why do you have to go get the guy that was kicked out? That's a great question. Why, why do you have to get the guy mm-hmm. that's the outsider to come back in? Because that outsider had to build within himself the confidence, the endurance, the strength, He could handle the rejection. He could handle the resistance. He could handle when things were, he lived his life with odds against him and he stayed strong.
0: That's who you want in a fight. So he basically talks to them for a little bit, um, asks them, why why do you want me now? What's going on? They say, all right, lead us, be our chief and we'll make you the head over um, all all the inhabitants of Gilead. And he said, if you take me back, um, I'm going to be your, your leader. You, you guys mean this? And they said, yep, we sure do. So um, I'm paraphrasing this just a little bit. Um, and so he he accepts the job, basically. He becomes the chief over all of them. Let me
1: just interject over that. This is what's very important. When he tells them to swear, I'm going to be your head. It's not the head over Israel. So he's not saying, make me the head over all of Israel. This is over the this tribe. Over this tribe, make me the head. This is very significant because he lost his inheritance because of the evil of his brothers shoving him out because they didn't share the same mom and his mom was a prostitute. He was basically saying, I want back what you took from me. But not in a greedy sense. It's like, I'll come back, but I'm not going to come back as this outsider I am going to come back in the role that I was destined for. Because keep in mind, he would have been the oldest son that he probably would have had that position anyway had his brothers not cast him out. Because he was the firstborn, because it wasn't later till more kids were born that they cast out Gilead or they cast out Jephthah, sorry. So you have to put that in context. He wasn't manipulating for position, he was wanting back what was his rightful inheritance. And that's where the role would have put him. So uh, it's very important that even when it's very interesting that certain people may cast you out of the world, but if you hold to your integrity, you don't bend, you keep moving with God, you, you, you stay in the fight, and you keep moving forward regardless of rejection. And the people that surround you might be deemed as worthless, deplorable, whatever, but you stay to your integrity. I don't mean just winning people over and being angry. He never became bitter. He never became angry because he kept to his integrity with God. And that brought him back to the place that the people had to restore him to the place that he was designed for. And it's true with Jesus too. Man, he's going to the cross and they're they're crucifying this guy, but not this guy. To them, we're getting rid of this guy, but they're crucifying the Messiah, their Messiah, their deliverer, but they cast him out as worthless. And all the people that followed him were looked at as worthless. Then he raises again and he gets the place back a position in time of the place because now we need him. And I just think it's a very, you got to start seeing these pictures because Jesus, when he read these stories, saw those pictures. This is what infused him. Why? Because it's written about him. Now, every aspect isn't necessarily written, but what the Spirit of God is doing and how he viewed it becomes so critical that we see integrity, we see valor, we see standing firm, even when you're rejected without becoming bitter, without becoming uh, defeated, without becoming being filled with animosity. Instead, he just stayed to his integrity with who God was. And he kept going, he kept moving, and eventually they wanted him. And didn't Jesus say, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and it will become a stumbling stone, so that way you'll bring me back? Great picture right there. There's a there's such a great picture of who Jesus was just in that opening scene. And to- Oh, by mm-hmm. the way, Jesus' brothers and sisters weren't really fond of him either, because they also knew right. uh, he wasn't of the full bloodline here. So it's it's very important jesus went through this same scenario that jephthah is going through
0: and again it's not a hey when you're when you're kicked out of the club when you're cast out and considered outside of the inner circle then just hang on because eventually they're going to come crawling back to you it, it, that that's not what this is about but it is about how deliverers rise up what valor looks like and yes when when the chips are down and there's an enemy at the gates, people look for someone of valor because they need to be rescued and redeemed. They need to be saved. And you don't get you don't get very far when you look around you and you've removed all the valor, you've removed all the integrity from your people and from your your tribe to where there's no valor left in anyone. Absolutely. And you see this even in uh, as you start reading through Which, the rest- Go ahead. The, the reason I bring that up, I guess, is we're trying to establish how important this depth of integrity is that your word means something. And when, when the most difficult times arise, you have to have someone that has that level of integrity to get out of it. And you don't get that level of integrity. By having your yes mean no sometimes, or meaning maybe, and being so having a a figurehead that is completely untrustable, untrustworthy, or un or won't make a decision, right, or tries to find loopholes and and ways out of things, yes. And I think that's not, that's not what valor and integrity are. It's not, well, I can work the system really well so that I can just kind of, you know, I, I know I said this, but I actually could have meant this. And so I can kind of wiggle it this way and, and present it and twist it a little bit like that. That's deceit. And th-
1: this could open up a whole lot of rabbit trails that we could go off because Jesus said, be uh, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove there is times Mm -hmm. you don't you don't speak there is times you're not you're not a constant uh we don't need that person that says i just speak what's on my mind well sometimes you need to to shut it off because we don't want to hear everything on your mind yeah you don't always want to hear everything on my mind sometimes you're you're having thoughts but you need to kind of take them back in and go okay wait a second what's going on with these thoughts what's real what's true how does this affect i mean you gotta you gotta Let's let's put a maturity in the context of that, but it does mean that who you are faced in a situation where what you've said, what you believe is now in that place, you've got to make a decision with that. Do you violate who you are or do you move forward with it at a great cost? And I think when we come to those decisions in life, we tend to I'll just get forgiveness later and go on and back up. And it's not about whether God would forgive you or not, because he will. It's the fact you're breaking down what you are, that you become almost like these the, the tribe of Gilead. They couldn't stand up when the enemy came at them. So now they had to go find someone who could
0: stand up to them. And it's available to you, too. That's that's one of the reasons where, why at the very beginning... I- I talked about this question of, is it something that we need in our culture and society today? Because I feel like we're at this place where we don't see the need for that depth of courage and valor because we've made the world so safe. We've made it you know, safe and prosperous, and there's not really so many enemies barging at the gates that we need a a man of integrity and valor to rise up who would never go back. We don't really need that. Because everything's kind of fine now.
1: Well, I, I would say unfortunately, what really isn't it isn't fine. You've just we we've adopted to the belief that the environments we're in that we're kind of worthless or lower than that environment. So we've just succumbed to it. And you do that long enough. And pretty soon when it is time to rise up, you don't even know what to rise up to. You have no standard of what what am I I, I what what does this look like versus Sometimes there's a benefit that you get cast out, because when you get cast out, you can look at it from the outside in. And, and again, I am not, I am not, I am not making the case, go get cast out. I'm making the case that when you stand for integrity and truth of what you are, you will be pushed away. And there is a difference. And again, we talked about the last, last podcast. I can deeply love you, but I don't need to bend to your view of me. Me bending to the view isn't saying I love you. There's no compassion or love. I want you to really ponder. When Jesus went to the leper, it said he had compassion. We're digressing off of Jephthah. We're going to probably finish up part of this next week. But it has to do with this you're the integrity of your word and how to stand and how to be valiant within that word at the cost. When Jesus went to the leper, and the man says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And he touched that man. He, at that moment, didn't just ruffle the feathers of a culture. He engaged with the worthless one that was never, you never touched him. You never went near him. They had to stay out. And he engaged that and delivered them. That was compassion, and the word compassion there meant a deep love for the man and a deep hatred to what was holding him down. Compassion is both passionate and deeply loving at the same time. If you don't see that's what compassion is so, that's why you see sometimes Jesus, as we would term a real humble state, and sometimes he was fierce as a lion going in but it was the same compassion. It was the mm-hmm. it was the same, and he never bent from his integrity. I love people. I hate the works of the enemy, what it does to him. He had a deep hatred towards evil and a deep love towards people, and he wouldn't break his word. That, that really pictures of who Jesus was. Back to chapter. The rest of the chapter, all the way up to his daughter, discusses how he goes and actually has conversations with Ammon. He goes and ha- sends messengers to the places he needed to cross over their borders. He he was working with them to, to negotiate so we could get this, this problem resolved. So I want you to catch that. His first thing was, was to hear their side and to explain what he needed to do and then having action. When he got no action, now war took place. So it wasn't like he was a warmonger. And he wasn't just going to go take something. He actually had a sense of integrity that he wanted to hear the other side so he could work through that. I want you to catch that. He wanted to hear what they had to say. He wanted to do this justly. He was a just, valiant man. And when you see that, we see Jesus doing that and reasoning with the Pharisees and talking with them and working through. He wasn't just rash. Yet when it came to a point, Yeah, we got to do something. But even in that, there was a sense of humility. I want to hear the other side. Valiant and integrity still hears the other side, because how can you judge a matter if you don't know both sides? You cannot. You can't be integrous if you're not willing to hear both sides. And that's arguments within yourself, even before you make a vow. Like you have to look at both sides of of the decision you're about ready to make, and then you own that decision. But even when we're working in a sense of an integrous heart and you're working with people, you have to hear both sides without an opinion yet, because you have to understand what's what's going on so you can render a verdict. And I will say this, Paul said this to the, said this to the church. How come you cannot judge a small matter and you send it to the courts to judge a matter? Don't you realize you'll be judging angels? I want you to ponder that. Paul says, Your ability to judge, not judging people, judging matters, is part of the Christian life. So you hear both sides and you make decisions. And don't you know you'll be doing this in eternity, making decisions and judging? And Integrity
0: would falls. It, would into it be that. splitting hairs too much? So this, the whole word judging, just for a second there. It's not that you arrive at a situation blindly and then say, Well, you're wrong and you're bad and I'm going to shun you. It's that you arrive at a situation, you as you said, you listen to all the sides, and then you establish here's the truth, and present that truth. And it's not to bash one side or the other based on your on where you started thinking already. It's just to establish a truth. And then if one side or the other or both conflict with the truth, then that's, that's, that's the dissonance there. And so it's not you coming with a hammer to hit people over the head. It's you bringing truth to a situation to establish it.
1: Yes. And then evaluating how you're going to go forward. So just like Jephthah, he's a judge, right? That's what his title is. Those first thing, he's Mm -hmm. trying to judge the matter. How do we go about this? We need to do something, but I want to know how to go about it. And so he's hearing from both sides. Then he makes a decision and people betray him and they break their word and they do things differently and then they feel the wrath of Jephthah in uh, Judges chapter 11 he talks to the people of Ammon and he makes his declaration of what he's going to do it's like he's rendering his verdict and I think this is very important 11 27 therefore I have not sinned against you but you wronged me by fighting against me may the lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon however The king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. See, Jephthah was all about your word. That's why he would send a messenger. He would expect a response. He would respond accordingly, and he would go back and forth. Why? Because you couldn't separate him from his word. And now he's showing that his word is now coming in contact with evil. And the king of Ammon did not heed the words. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah and Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hand, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's and I'll offer it up as a burnt, Offering. By the way, that kind of gets rid of all the myths of what actually was the outcome for the daughter. A burnt offering. Because he in his mind he's thinking some kind of cattle field, whatever, would meet him, not, not his daughter. Now, we can argue whether that was a He did he need to make a vow. Well, in the time of old, as Jesus said, they had they made vows and they had to fulfill their vow. But now Jesus saying, don't even make a vow, just say yes or no. So it's very important that it actually clarifies what would happen to what was coming out of the gate, which it makes it a awful situation for Jephthah.
0: And again, there's, if you Google this whole thing, you'll get people with opinions and references saying, well, he technically could have done this under this Levitical code and And as I've looked into those, into those theories and those perspectives and everything, it just, it, it seems that we're trying to interpret something into the text from our point of view, based on what we think would be the right outcome. And I don't know that that's fair. And I think, again, that misses the point. The point being, what does your word mean? And if you're going to draw lines and say, well, my word is good, unless it's something that's important then I'm going to try to figure out a loophole to get around my word. Then what is it worth? What can, what can you trust in yourself? What can someone else trust in you? If we can't establish some mode of truth. And, and we have to
1: pick, get the mosaic of what do we see in Jesus, in Jesus that we can also see in this story. What aspect of Jesus is displayed here? One, his integrity. Two, his love for people and trying to find a way to get it done differently, discovering there's only one way. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and then he makes this vow. Now, Jesus clarifies that. But I I think what's very important in all of this is we can get lost into discrediting or devaluing an aspect of this person's life based on an interpretation we want to have. Now, when I'm reading it, it's pretty clear what he did, that he is grieved and he promised to offer a burnt offering. Does that mean God wanted a child sacrifice? No. But there is a picture of the thing that he loved the most is the thing that it would cost, and it grieved him. And if we just stop there, that God loved Jesus. Jesus loved God. The Holy Spirit, they're all one. They're so one. And now you're going to the cross, and it's going to cost the sacrifice of Jesus. And that, that what was going on in the Garden of Eden, it was what was going on right here. Now, I love it that we don't really hear the outcome of this story. It ends with his daughter going up and it ends with his daughter cooperating with him the same way Isaac cooperated with Abraham. So if we could get more than cooperating, she she tells them you have to do this. Yes. There's something deeper in integrity and in the, the that needed to happen. And I think we do God a disservice because it just goes like, what kind of creepy God do you have that he has to go and sacrifice his son? because blood was shed and innocence was done, and we have to go deal with this. And I think this is, if you look at how Jesus lived, he had to go back through all these scriptures and discover who he was. I think he saw that relationship between uh, Jephthah and his daughter and understanding the grief that was going on because that exact same thing takes place in the garden. And if we could see the picture, the typology, In that story versus getting so technical on the technicality of it, if you remove the typology, you remove the typology that happened to Jesus. You got to keep that in there because you see the same process taking place. And it's important to see that. So, what does that tell us today? One, we don't swear by anything. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. Our word is our integrity. Two, God doesn't have to swear by anything because his integrity is sound. That, That that's a truth right there. What's the other thing we could learn from Jephthah? That if we hold to our integrity, regardless of what the world around you do, and you hold to that, so we could see that there. We also could see the Spirit of God at work giving a type and shadow of what Jesus would go do. and if We could catch that. It will fuel and empower who we are, because we can take that typology. What you love the most, think about the cost to your integrity. If God or Jesus said, no, I don't want to do this, it's way too much, everything would fall apart. Integrity and the word, that's why we trust his promise. I mean, you just think about what can we trust about God if he won't break his word, even to his own hurt. And what would hurt him the most? The one he loves the most. Even to that, he won't break his word
0: that's what I take from this. And it's, it's, again, it's not a, well, did you have to do the right thing or the wrong thing? Or that's not the point. The point I'm seeing is there is integrity in the word of God. And what that means for us today is there is not integrity in the word of the world. There's not integrity in media and news and politicians and all these other things. There's integrity in the word of God that has to be primary and we can't conflate the two because they're not the same thing. And I think a lot of times we get used to just assuming that what we hear has integrity behind it, because it's, we've heard it a lot. We've been listening to this person for, you know, since we were kids, of course they would never lie to me on TV and all this nonsense that we just get locked into, but having that confidence That when my father speaks the word over me, it is what it is. It doesn't shake. It doesn't go away based on what I do, based on how well I keep, quote, my end of the bargain. Because even if we want to look at it from that aspect of, well, I made a bargain with God. And as long as I keep my end up, he'll keep his end up. The, The Bible says even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So his word, his integrity isn't based on our ability to keep ours. Absolutely. That's pretty comforting. Absolutely. And And like you were saying earlier, to me, that doesn't make me think, well, let's see what I can get away with. Let's see how many promises I can make to God to trick him into doing something for me that I don't have to follow through with. Because why do you have to do anything else if the God who has everything is promising? The only
1: reason we're doing that is because we think he's holding out on us. The more he keeps his promise, it's like, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go against my own word. And by the way, I'm not saying this, that if you're not keeping your word, I I want you to picture more of Jesus is this person. Jesus is the Jephthah. And Jesus, the picture of Jephthah. Jesus fought for people who couldn't keep their word. Who did Jephthah deliver? The people who cast him out. So even if you Mm -hmm. have done this, you can also see the mercy and the love and the grace for his own people that cast him out. It's a powerful story. He should have said, no way, you guys treat me like garbage. I should be fighting you. No, he went and fought and delivered the people who cast him out. How much mercy. So if you're the one who's cast him out, he's still fighting for you. He's still fighting for you because he won't break his word. I I think my closing thoughts is I just want to encourage people to start going back and reading look through the lens. What did Jesus see in the story? There's all sorts of truths you can get from the story. There's some, there's some really good things of, yeah, this ain't the smartest thing to do. And Jesus even corrects it. But if you get focused on what not to do, but you don't focus on what to do from that character, you, you will, you're going to miss the whole thing. So before you find out what not to do, find out what to do. Because there's, way more of what to do than there is what not to do in the story of jephthah and the pick but then also say what was the image that was trying to be shown from this story and now you see jesus it it is it is a powerful idea and he's revealed through all these stories
0: well we're going to wrap it up with that we appreciate you guys being here each and every week with us on this mission 300 podcast and all these all these principles we're talking about again there's is the basis for what we've been running the, the mission 300 program on. And so to get some more context on this, because again, I know one topic like this might spring a dozen different questions, go back and listen to the last few episodes, because we cover a lot of um, questions that you might have after listening to this one, we've talked about on previous episodes. So that'll give you a bit of a more context and a backstory to it. But until next time, we appreciate you guys and stay in the fight.